This episode of History is brought to you in part by Patty Malone's Irish Pub and Fectal Beverage, both of Jefferson City, Missouri. Stop by Patty Malone's this week and enjoy one of the many fine craft beers on draft from Fectal Distributing. Enjoy a beer today, but please do so responsibly. And tonight, I'm drinking Santa Fe Brewing's Freestyle Pilsner, their homage to that German style of lager beer. As its name suggests, this Pilsner does not like to be categorized. Brewed with traditional ingredients, but it is the way that these ingredients interact that cause this particular Pilsner to stand alone. An unhurried lagering process makes this beer light, clean, and thirst-quenching and refreshing. Perfect for those late summer barbecues, Santa Fe Freestyle Pilsner, brewed by our friends at Santa Fe Brewing Company, Santa Fe, New Mexico, the beer made with the spirit of the Southwest. Before we get into it tonight, as I stated last week, you'll want to get in on our Grand Irish Pub Crawl Tour of Ireland That's Memorial Day of 2018, and there's no better time than now to do so. If you sign up as a Patreon patron this month, August of 2017, at the $10 per month support level, and you remain a patron through May of 2018, you will receive 10% off of the tour price, a savings of $265 per person. So listen through the end of the program, and you'll hear all the details again. Again, that's the Grand Irish Pub Crawl Tour of Ireland. Memorial Day 2018. And remember, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. Share the podcast with your friends. It's easy, and it would really help us in spreading the gospel of history. One more bit of housekeeping. We're going to start posting the podcast on Wednesdays rather than Tuesdays. Looking over the schedule, this just works better for Marilee and I. It gives us I don't have to worry about rushing Monday night to get it out on Tuesday. It's one of our only nights that we have together. It'll give me that time for us to spend together. I hope it works out for you as well. And now, on with the show. Historians have on occasion looked very differently upon the passage of time. One school of thought sees human history as the result of a series of cataclysmic events, where one figurative explosion is followed by another, which causes another and yet another. Sometimes these explosions are actually literal. An example of this school of thought would start with the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand in June of 1914 by Serbian revolutionaries, and that gave the Austro-Hungarian Empire all the excuse it needed to invade Serbia, which triggered a military response from Russia who was allied with Serbia at the time, and also triggered a declaration of war with the Austrians by France, who was allied to Russia. Germany, in the wake of a nationalistic fervor from the last half of the 19th century, had heavily militarized and was itching to use that army and navy, and being allied to Austria-Hungary, they took the opportunity to invade Belgium and march onward into eastern France, which caused Britain to come to the aid of their French allies. Now, just add the Ottoman Empire to the east, another ally of Austria-Hungary, and it was ready to grab parts of southwestern Russia and British-controlled areas of the Middle East, and you have the deadliest conflict ever known in the history of mankind. And so began World War I. The war quickly stalemated, hard lines of battle were drawn, trench warfare became the norm, 
Three years onward, the Bolsheviks in Russia saw a chance since the Romanov dynasty was tied up in the midst of the war and the country teetering on bankruptcy. The Marxists were then able to overthrow the Tsar and take control of the government. Now, with Russia out of the war, the Germans were able to reallocate military resources from the Eastern Front to the Western Front, and American scions of finance, such as J.P. Morgan and John Paul Getty and other U.S. tycoons who had invested heavily in Britain and France, feared that Germany might win, and they would lose their capital investments, so they heavily lobbied Congress and President Woodrow Wilson who then used the sinking of the Lusitania by a German U-boat, although it had happened two years earlier, and a made-up piece of propaganda called the Zimmerman Telegraph, which had the Germans offering back to Mexico its former territories in the southwestern United States, including California, if the Mexicans joined Germany and Austria-Hungary in the war. And that was all the American public needed, and it was all that the United States needed to justify entering the war in April of 1917. The war ended 18 months later, on November 11, 1918. Germany was devastated by the terms of peace. Basically, their economy had been annihilated. And that led to the emergence of the National Socialist German Workers' Party in the 1920s and the takeover of the German government by the Nazis in 1933, the rise of Hitler, the invasion of Poland in 39, the German invasion of Russia, the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 41, World War II, the Battle of Britain, the North Africa campaign, the Italian campaign, the firebombing of Germany, the Normandy invasions, the Pacific Island hopping battles, the fall of Berlin, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and it goes on and on and on. Everything that cataclysmically happens is just a reaction to something that cataclysmically happened before. Everything. Or so this one school of historical thought goes. But sometimes cataclysm, that's chaos, can impact other things, simpler things. It doesn't have to be another catastrophe. We've all heard that axiom, the Chinese symbol for crisis, is a combination of the symbols of danger and opportunity. Well, folks, it's bullshit. It's not true. But motivational speakers in America have been spewing that forth since it was first written down somewhere in the 1930s. Even President Kennedy, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and Nobel Prize winner Al Gore have used this anecdote in their speeches. But the point of that anecdote, even though it's not true, is this. Sometimes good things come out of fucked up circumstances. Now, 60 years before World War I, in the German states, in 1848 and 1849, there was a social rebellion emerging across the land. Heavy taxation and political censorship had led liberals and the working class to question the rights of the ruling hierarchies to govern the people. Now, this was just an extension of the thought of liberty coming out of the Enlightenment, which led to the American Revolution, and then the French Revolution, and the liberalization of the government in Britain. The German revolutionaries of the 1840s stressed pan-Germanism, 
demonstrated popular discontent with the traditional, largely autocratic political structure of the 39 independent German states that had formerly been known as the Holy Roman Empire, which was, by the way, neither holy nor Roman. Of course, the governments of these German states, they cracked down immediately on the populace, with Prussia, the largest of the states, taking a preeminent position within a consolidated German empire. This gave rise to the German militarism and nationalism that eventually culminated with the First World War. The German revolutionary leaders were hunted down by the Kaiser's police along with many of their revolutionary followers, and they fled Germany with the largest contingent of those coming to the United States, where they settled in the heartland of a growing nation. Thriving German communities of democratic, liberal, like-minded thinking sprung up from Texas to Wisconsin. And with them, these immigrants brought lager beer. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began, this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. Lager. When we hear that word, it brings about images of golden, icy, cold, refreshing beer. The beer that most of us grew up with here in the United States even if we didn't know that there was any other kinds of beer to be drank. When I was a teenager in northeast Missouri, we drank Bush Bavarian-style beer because it was cheaper than Budweiser, and this was long before Natty Light came along. And almost everybody I knew drank Anheuser-Busch beers, mainly because of the brewery's association with the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, there were some exceptions, my grandfather drank Falstaff, another St. Louis brand, from the Greasy Dick Brothers Brewing Company, who also brewed Stag. My dad preferred Pabst Blue Ribbon. He was a union labor man, and there had been a dispute between the AFL-CIO and Anheuser-Busch in the early 70s, and the brewery workers went on strike, and all of the unions boycotted AB products, and that was when he started to drink Pabst. Schlitz was also very popular among the older generation, and then when light beer from Miller came along in the late 70s, it took off, mainly because of a brilliant marketing strategy featuring the phrase, less filling tastes great, and an increased public consciousness about calories. And then Coors first became available in Missouri around the time I graduated from high school in 1979. Now, when I was in college, I drank... Miller High Life, because we had it on tap at the bar where I worked up in Maryville. But none of us thought about the beer we were drinking back then. We didn't know the difference at the time between a lager and an ale. We didn't even really think about the fact that all of the beers that I had just named had one major thing in common. And I'm not talking about what kind of beer they were. The breweries were all founded by German immigrants. Frederick Pabst, Joseph Schlitz, Frederick Miller, originally was Mueller, Johann Limp, Anton Greasy Dick, Eberhard Anheuser, Adolphus Busch, Adolf Coors, all of them, without exception, were immigrants from Germany. Now why, you might ask, in a country, America, 
founded by colonists from the British Isles, which was an ale-drinking culture, and a country in which ale was the only beer that was brewed in North America for nearly 250 years, going back to the earliest settlements at the beginning of the 17th century. Why did that country, within 100 years, become almost exclusively a lager beer drinking culture? Now, to answer that question, we first need to distinguish between ales and lagers. And I know I've gone over some of this before with in previous podcasts, but trust me, you're going to want to hear this, all right? It all has to do with yeast, all right? Ale yeast is a top-fermenting type. It's known as Saccharomyces cerevisiae. While lager yeast is a bottom-fermenting type, Saccharomyces uvarum. That's all the Latin I'm doing, okay? That's it. These two varieties are further broken down into categories of specific strains. There are hundreds of strains of ale yeast domesticated and wild. However, there are only a very few strains of lager yeast, and all of those are very closely related. And you'll understand why here in just a bit. But first, I need a drink. Ale yeast perform best at temperatures raising from 65 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit, with certain ale strains performing well in temperatures as low as 55 degrees, but any temperature below that tends to inhibit fermentation with ales. Most strains of ale yeast will not work below 55 degrees. Ale yeast exhibit a tendency to flocculate, that is, make foam at the surface of the fermenting beer, during the first few days of fermentation, and that foam tends to stay there at the top, although it settles out a little bit, and hence the term top-fermenting yeast. And most strains of ale yeast finish fermentation within one to three weeks, and not much longer. Lager yeast is a variety of yeast that is best used at temperatures ranging from 45 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit, with some lager strains performing well at temperatures as low as 32 degrees. The desired smoothness of lager beer is best achieved from fermentations carried out at the lower end of this temperature range for anywhere from three weeks to many, many months. Now, during this long period, the beer is lagered, that is, stored in a cool environment. Cellars, subterranean warehouses, and caves were historically used for lagering before refrigeration. And the word lager itself actually means to store or warehouse in the original German. Now, all strains of lager yeast will flocculate and then settle and fall to the bottom of the fermenting vessel, leaving a clearer, lighter colored beer, hence the term bottom fermenting. Now, before the middle of the last millennia, the only yeast ever used to make beer of any kind, going back 10,000 years, going all the way back to the Fertile Crescent of Egypt, Palestine, Persia, Mesopotamia, the only yeast that was known all the way back there at the dawn of civilization was ale yeast. And it is not until the 15th century that historians begin to say lager yeast was first used in Germany. But 
While this is widely accepted as a fact, there is no documentation or evidence to support the claim. German brewers have historically been known for their lighter-flavored ales, such as Alt Beer and Kolsch, brewed with top-fermenting yeast at a warmer temperature, that is, ale yeast, but then they would be finished in a cold storage finishing area. So it was just assumed that lager yeast were just an evolutionary step brought on by the different brewing practices used in Central Europe. But there was never any scientific evidence to support this assertion, and nothing points to a specific date when lager yeast may have first emerged with German brewers. Not even a specific time. For the longest time, no one knew when, where, or how lager even happened. And we only know that the first scientifically recognized difference in the two types of yeast came in the mid-19th century. Now, while ale yeast is found in the wild in Europe and is basically the same yeast that is used to ferment wine to make bread rise, there's no feral equivalent to lager yeast. None. Not one. Not found anywhere in Europe, Asia, Africa, or North America. And through genetic testing, it was determined that lager was not an evolutionary mutation of ale yeast was its own distinct thing and had a, it was a completely different organism. Now, the only thing these two types of yeast had in common was that they both could convert sugar into alcohol, although be it by different methods. So, for years, no one could definitively explain how lager yeast might have came about. Only oral tradition, folklore, and widely accepted belief points to lager yeast evolutionarily developing in Central Europe by German and Czech brewers. It was one of the great mysteries ever in the history of beer. I said was. Because in 2010, a genetics professor, Todd Hintinger from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, imagine, uh, Wisconsin-Madison, they discovered something about beer, identified the first known case of wild-occurring lager yeast in nature, and of all places, on galls, that is, growths found on beech trees in the forest of Patagonia at the southern tip of South America. Nowhere else ever in the world has there been found an uncultivated, naturally-occurring wild strain of lager yeast. Hintinger even worked in conjunction with the University of Lisbon in Portugal to try to identify beach galls in European beach forests that might have the same type of yeast, but none has yet been found. Now, this new yeast, it was hustled off to the University of Colorado School of Medicine, where a team that included Professor Hintinger sequenced its genome, and they found it being completely distinct from every identified wild species of yeast known. But it was 99.5% identical to cultivated lager genome and the strains of yeast used in lager brewing today. Now, this next bit, <laughs> this really fucking freaked me out when I read it. I, I, I'm, I, I am a nerd, okay? I'm a geek. This was really cool. But listen. The Colorado study also identified genetic mutations in the domestic lager yeast hybrid that was distinctive from the genome 
of the wild lager yeast. And those changes appeared to be a hybridization of this newly discovered wild lager yeast and domesticated ale yeast, taking place in a brewing environment where evolution can be amped up by repetitive cultivated use of these yeast, let's call it a GMO, genetically modified organism, albeit accidental, it still nonetheless was humans refining this new yeast ability to metabolize sugars and malt and to produce sulfites, transforming an organism that lived on beech trees to just process simple sap sugars into a lean, mean, beer-making machine. And that, identified by the genetic sequences, all began, get this, 500 years ago. What that means, unless future evidence can bear it out differently, yeast used in the brewing of lager beer today has a common ancestor in the yeast found in the galls on beech trees in South America. This discovery also suggests that hybridization instantaneously informed an imperfect proto-lager from the cooler climate of the extreme southern latitudes that was more cold-tolerant than ale yeast and ideal for the cool lagering processes used in the foothills of the German Alps. And the yeast type was unwittingly nurtured into a stronger yeast strain by second millennia European brewers. So, If this Patagonian strain is the only case of lager yeast ever found in the wild, it begs the question, how did lager yeast get from the furthest known habitable environment in the southern hemisphere of the New World to the middle of Europe in the northern hemisphere around 500 years ago? And there's really only one explanation. Someone from a European exploration, the first to reach that area in South America was Ferdinand Magellan Expedition of 1520, and the second was the Sir Francis Drake Expedition in 1578. Someone from a European exploration unknowingly brought that yeast strain to Europe. Now, less likely to happen, but perhaps it was a stowaway brought along trade routes by the First Nations, that is, the people that are wrongly referred to as Indians, from Patagonia to the very early Spanish conquistadors' holdings in the Caribbean, Mesoamerica, and the Incan Andes in the late 14 and early 1500s. Now, Columbus noted that he found the Lucayan, Taino, and Arawak people making a beer from maize and black birch sap. Could this have been the vehicle of contact for that proto-lager yeast which made its way to Europe. Probably not. Highly unlikely, since Columbus's voyages were in a tropical area, and lager yeast does not survive well in hot weather over long periods of time. But who's to say that this particular proto-yeast strain wasn't uh, strong enough to make it through that? Who knows? So whether it came from America on a piece of fruit, or in a crevice of a piece of wood, or let's say... The full stomach of a bunch of fruit flies who infested a ship. Who the fuck knows? But it appears now, all evidence points to this one fact, 
lager yeast came to Europe from the New World. I'm going to have a drink on that. Think about that for a minute. It's just mind-blowing. I'm always amazed by the intersection of science and history and how science, especially evolutionary science, can explain so much in about uh, the, the changes in uh, our evolutionary history. Anyway, like, I'd love to do a show sometime about all of the things that uh, we now have here in North America that came from Europe, and I'm talking about plants and animals and whatnot, uh, that came from Europe that we now have here in North America, and stuff that came from the Western Hemisphere and is now growing in Europe. I'd love to do a show on that, but that not, has nothing to do with alcohol, but it's still fascinating. Anyway, so let's anyway, back to beer. The I'm oh I still got a little beer in this can. Thank you, Santa Fe. Now the difference between the two styles of beer, ales and lagers, was well documented by European observers beginning in the late 1500s, but it had nothing to do with the yeast. You see, people then didn't even know what the hell yeast was. Well, they knew what yeast was, but they didn't know what it was. I mean, okay, they didn't know it was a microbial organism. They had no idea. But brewers knew that if you took some of the foam from the top of the fermenting vessel and you added it to the next batch of wort, that wort is unfermented beer, it would turn into more beer. Now, the word yeast actually describes what the medieval brewers thought they had. The old English word for yeast is geist, which comes from the Indo-European root word yeast, which means foam. It wasn't really until the 1850s. Well, I shouldn't say it wasn't really until the 1850s. It wasn't until the 1850s when scientist Louis Pasteur discovered and described what was going on in the fermentation process that people began to understand how yeast worked. It converts sugars into alcohol, and a byproduct of that is carbon dioxide. So prior to the discovery of yeast as a microbial organism and how it worked, people who traveled through different parts of, the, of Europe or were wealthy enough to import beers from different countries in Europe simply knew that the beer from the German areas of Bavaria, the Rhineland, Upper Saxony, Hesse, Thuringia, Bohemia and Pils and what is now the Czech Republic, and Austria were very different than the ales that were being brewed in Britain and Ireland, Scandinavian, and even the low countries of Holland, Flanders, Belgium, and the German states of Lower Saxony, Schleswig-Holstein, and Mecklenburg. Now, generally speaking at the time, ales tended to be darker, have a cloudier appearance, higher alcohol content, and a stronger, fruitier, more robust flavor with stronger, bitter tones from the flavoring agents like Groot and then later on hops, and the bitterness was also a result of a shorter brewing process. Lagers tended towards a lighter, clear appearance, had a lower alcohol content, and a smoother, crisp flavor from slow fermentation and cold treatment over time. Overall, 
This was how observers at the time saw these two different types of beer. Now, as I said, these are generalizations, and they're generalizations because they're generally true. That, but there are lighter ales like the German styles of Alt beer and Kolsch, and there are darker lagers like Vienna style and Marzen lagers, and Schwarzbier from the German province of Thuringia. Schwarzbier literally translates to black beer. There are also higher alcohol content lagers like Dortmunder, and there are low alcohol content ales like Miles and Session styles. But to the eye and the palate of the Europeans in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, the aforementioned differences were primarily how they viewed those two styles of beers. So let's fast forward, sail across the Atlantic to the fledgling United States of the early 1800s. Ales were all that was really known to the brewing industry at that time, and most people didn't even get their beer from a brewery. They either made it themselves at home or they bought it from a neighbor who brewed ale at home. Lager beer was an unknown thing, even to the descendants of German immigrants who had come to America during the colonial period. Now, large numbers of Germans had settled along the frontier regions of the Mohawk River of Upper New York and the Piedmont region of Pennsylvania, those people we today called the Pennsylvania Dutch. Actually, they weren't Dutch. They were Deutsch. They were Germans. And scattered pockets of German neighborhoods in the American cities along the seaboard. Lager yeast were never brought to America by the German immigrants to the British colonies in the early and mid-18th century. So these German Americans had grown up drinking ale alongside their British, Scottish, Welsh, and Irish-descended neighbors. But this all changed in the 1840s. Even before the German revolutionaries came to America in 1848 and 1849 and the early 1850s, there were two men, separate German immigrants, but both came to America with a plan. German brewers had perfected their lagers in the late 17 and early 1800s, and some contemplated taking their new product across the Atlantic to the land of opportunity. And one such brewmaster was John Wagner from Bavaria. He arrived in Philadelphia in 1840, carrying with him a supply of lager yeast and dreams of a fortune to be made in America. Hoping to keep his delicate yeast alive, Wagner sailed on board one of the new clipper ships, the fastest sailing ship across the Atlantic at that time. It was this earlier lack of fast transport that had probably kept lager yeast from reaching North America at an earlier date. Lager is very sensitive. If it's not kept at a right temperature, it will go bad. If it gets too warm, it's done. And if it's too long, without being given any more sugar to keep it going, it will die. So... Now, Wagner, he carefully cultivated his lager yeast, and he brought it and he set up shop in Philadelphia, running an operation out of the back of his home. Now, the brewery that introduced lager to Philadelphia was tiny. It consisted of a kettle hung over an open hearth. And Wagner's brewing capacity was limited to only eight barrels a year, which he then stored and lagered in a cellar in the rear of his property. Now, probably as a result of limited capital, but others have probably asserted that because he was trying to brew on a shoestring and his beer was probably shit, 
Wagner's experiment did not lead to the establishment of a successful lager brewery in Philadelphia, although he did remain in that, that town for some years operating a beer hall. Most historians attribute Wagner's brewery to being the first in the country to brew lager beer, even if it was not very large or a commercial success. However, he did contribute to the future history of lager brewing in Philadelphia as he sold a pint of his precious yeast to another German immigrant, and from that pint of yeast, three breweries emerged in the Pennsylvania metropolis. And it was just in time for the influx of German immigrants coming to that city in the late 1840s and the early 1850s. Now, the other German immigrant who came to America to brew lager was a little bit more successful. Born in 1793 in the province of Hesse, Johann Adam Lemp had learned the art of lager brewing growing up in Hesse and as an adult became a master brewer in the cities of Groningen and Eschwig. I hope I'm saying that right, and if I'm not, eh, who fucking cares? But in 1836, at the age of 43, he left his career as a brewer for America, where he intended to make his fortune in the mercantile business on the expanding American frontier. He first started a shop in Cincinnati, but he quickly realized that that city, which had once been on the edge of the old Northwest, was no longer the jumping-off point to the American West. That, he learned, was in St. Louis. And after two years in Ohio, he packed up and he moved to Missouri in 1838. Adam Limp, as he preferred to be called, established a small mercantile business at what is now Del Mar and 6th Street in St. Louis. In addition to the general merchandise that he sold in his store, Limp also sold in small quantities two additional items that he manufactured himself, vinegar and beer. And apparently it didn't take long for Adam to see a greater future in his previous career of brewing, because after two years, he went and established a new factory at 112 South 2nd Street between Walnut and Elm Streets. This new plant was built to produce both beer and malt vinegar, a common manufacturing practice at the time. I, I need more beer. Mm. And for the first few years, Limp sold his beer in a public house, which was attached to the brewery. Now, between 1842 and 1845, the growing popularity of Limp's beer was great enough to allow him to discontinue vinegar production altogether, and concentrate on beer brewing only. That's kind of a redundancy if you say beer brewing only. Although, I guess not, because you can brew tea, you can brew coffee. I could have worded that better. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> now, while 1840 is the date that's usually given by the Lemp Brewing Company and their histories for the founding of the enterprise, I'm out of beer. Oh, yeah. Got one more here. Where was I? 1840. The actual date that Adam Limp began brewing beer in commercial quantities, and particularly lager beer, may have been much earlier. It's certainly possible that he carried his own lager yeast 
with him, and it was never documented where he obtained his first yeast, but it certainly at that early date, it had to have come from Germany, and since he arrived in America in 1836, right, it could be assumed that he brought that yeast with him from the brewery where he worked before in Hesse, and he began brewing beer even in Cincinnati. We don't know, but it can be assumed. There is strong evidence that Adam Lamp had made a commercial lager for sale off of his premises as early as 1838, beating the aforementioned Philadelphia brewer John John Wagner by two years. Now, if Adam Lemp did indeed bring the lager yeast with him and used it while brewing in his mercantile store in 1838 on 2nd Street in St. Louis, then he does indeed deserve the crown as the first lager brewer in America. And with that, St. Louis deserves the distinction of being the first lager brewing capital of the United States. Now, there are some doubters, I will tell you. However, and they do point to a date as late as 1842 for the start of his lager beer brewing. The St. Louis City Directory of 1840-41, it lists Limp as a grocer, not a brewer, with no mention of his brewery on 2nd Street. The May 30th, 1857 edition of the Daily Missouri Republican newspaper state that, states that Lemp's Western Brewery, which is what the Second uh, Street Brewery was called, was established 15 years ago, which by the date of the paper, that again would point to an 1842 establishment date for his brewing enterprise. But regardless, whatever the exact date that Adam Lemp introduced his lager beer to the city of St. Louis, no one can dispute that he was one of the first to be produced in America, and without question, he's the first lager brewer in St. Louis. And with the influx of German immigrants coming to the Midwest after the mid-1840s, lager beer was quick to catch on. And I'm going to have a drink of one right now. Mmm. Eventually, lager beer in St. Louis was sold, it outsold ales. And the reason why lager beer was so successful in St. Louis and not in other emerging cities in the American West had to do with one thing limestone and naturally occurring caves. And that were so important to the lagering process in making German style beer. Adam Limp started a revolution in the industry, and for that reason, he is rightly called the father of modern brewing in St. Louis. Father of modern brewing? Why don't you just call him the father of brewing in St. Louis? Yeah, there were some ale producers, some French fucks that came up with Chateau and Leclede, who probably brewed some shitty beer, but ale, you know? And then, of course, they're... Now, the Irish never brewed much beer. The Irish immigrants didn't. Uh, they, they were moonshiners, you know? We Remember, we talked about that before. Well, anyway, I digress. He's not the father of modern brewing in St. Louis. He's the father of brewing in St. Louis. Anyway, on we go. With increased sales, Limp expanded his operation to a newly discovered limestone cave to the south of the city limits. It was exposed during an excavation, and it's now that site is at the corner of Cherokee and what is called Limp Avenue. 
And buildings related to that site and to that brewery, although built later in the 1800s, they still stand there today. Now, his new with this new facility, Limp was innovative in another area of the industry, something that had never been done before in that part of the world, year-round lagering. By utilizing the storage of huge blocks of ice cut from the Mississippi River when it froze solid during the winter, Limp was able to keep the temperature in the cave controlled for lagering beer even during the hot, humid Missouri summers. At first, the cave housed several oak casks, each holding 20 to 30 barrels of beer, which had been brewed at the original brewery over on 2nd Street and then taken by cart to this cave for the lagering process. By the end of that first year of operation, Adam Limp had made over 3,000 barrels of lager beer in his cave. Lemp's Western Brewery continued to grow during the 1840s, and by 1850, it was the largest lager brewery in St. Louis with an annual production of 4,000 barrels of beer. In 1858, Lemp's beer captured the first prize at the annual St. Louis Fair. That same year, Lemp was listed as the most substantial brewer in the city, having sufficient money to make him independent and owning substantial amounts of real estate in the city and the surrounding countryside. Limp's Saloon was also a major factor in the early growth of his first brewery. The tavern was improved through the 1850s, becoming the largest in the city, a popular hot spot that served only his beer and no hard liquor. This policy served a dual purpose. Not only were beer sales enhanced because they weren't competing with anything else, But the saloon's reputation improved as well, with beer seen by many as a drink of moderation during the rising tide of the temperance movement in the mid-1800s. And by not serving spirits, it dissuaded the hardened drunks, like those damned whiskey-drinking Irish, from frequenting the premises. Eventually, Limp moved his entire brewing operation to the Cherokee Avenue property over the cave. And eventually, that grew to a property of 27 buildings, including the haunted Limp Mansion. And I'll talk about that at Halloween time. (laughs) Anyway, 27 buildings, including the Limp Mansion, on almost 14 acres of land. And that brewery along with another that Limp built across the river in Belleville, Illinois. And between the two breweries, they made Limp, Falstaff, Greasy Dick, and Stag beers well into the mid-20th century. And at the site of Adam Limp's first brewery, the one at 112 South 2nd Street, well, at that site now stands the Gateway Memorial Arch a tribute to the immigrants, pioneers, and adventurers, men like Adam Limp, and women too, who opened up the American West. On August 25th of 1862, at his home, the Limp Mansion in St. Louis, Johann Adam Limp passed away at the age of 69, a rich man who in the span of just a bit more than 20 years built and managed 
a brewery into being a leader in St. Louis industry. He proved how successful one man could be in America by brewing lager beer. But he was only the first. The next generation of German brewing entrepreneurs that followed in the decades after Limp's initial brewing ventures is astonishing. It's one of the marvels of America's industrial growth, and it's a great story. And that's where we'll pick up next week when we look at the German beer barons of America and how they changed a nation and how they made lager beer America's beer. History Episode 36 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman. The Technical Director of History is Brian McGeorge. The Marketing Director of History is Tim I'm Not the Bomber McVeigh. A special shout-out and thank you to my good friend Tony Rehagen, a Patreon patron of ours, who suggested this topic this week. Thanks, Tony, and all of you out there. If you have a suggested topic, please let me know. History is a Wild Irish production, all rights reserved, and it was recorded at River's Edge Studios and Patty Malone's Irish Pub in the scenic capital of Jefferson City, Missouri. This week's phrase for you podcast listeners, that, that's from this Wednesday through Friday, is as American as lager beer. You know what to do. As American as lager beer is your phrase. A big thank you to all of our Patreon patrons. It's now August, and you have helped us to make it another month. So thank you to Tim Emmel, Frank and Carol Burkhead, Tara Kempker-McVeigh, Tony and Aaron Rehagen, Zach Paul, Ethan Cordray, David Fisher, Tom and Lindsay Reichardt, Justin and Kayla Bosca, George and Anna Carr, Terrence Duffy, Kevin Lansford, Brian Connell and Sheila Carnett, Gyla and John Albert, Mary Lynn Paff Richards, Chris and Sarah Schapp and the Santa Fe Brewing Company of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thanks, guys. Thanks to all of you for helping us to keep the lights on. Thanks to everyone who shared the post on Facebook or retweeted. And a special thank you to everyone who shared the podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. The theme music for history is from Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project? Then contact Ben Sound and see what they might have for you. That's B-E-N-S-O-U-N-D dot com. And don't forget that special offer for the Grand Irish Pub Crawl Tour of Ireland. That's 10 days, 10 nights, May 28th through June 8th, 2018. Only 24 slots. Minimum of 12 to go and make it happen. Kilkenny, Cork, Dingle, Galway, and Dublin. Package includes three plus and four stars accom- four star accommodations. The Kilkenny Hibernian Hotel, Imperial Hotel, Cork City, Dingle Skellig Hotel, Juries in Galway, Juries in Christchurch, Dublin. Private luxury coach with native Irish driver, personal guide and host, me. Full Irish breakfast daily, group dinner on day of arrival in Kilkenny. Admission fees and tours for Smithix Brewery in Kilkenny, courtesy of Vectal Beverage, Rock of Cashel County Tipperary, Care Castle County Tipperary, Jameson Experience, Old Middleton Distillery with premium whiskey tasting, Charles Fort, Kinsale County Cork, Michael Collins Birthplace, Woodfield County Cork, Bale Nabla County Cork, Cassane Sheep Farm, 
in County Miles Gap, County Cary, Galleris Ord, Terry Slayhead Drive, County Cary, Dingle Crystal Workshop, Cliffs of Mar, Guinness Storehouse, Dublin Cityscape, Irish House Party. We're going to visit more pubs than I can name right here. I mean a ton of them. That's $2,654.49 per person based on double occupancy. But if you sign up as a Patreon patron, if you're an existing Patreon patron, or if you sign up this month in August at the $10 level, you get 10% off of that price. That's $265 off. That price does not include airfare to and from Dublin, gratuities, or any other expenses not explicitly stated in the description. And if you'd like more information, hey, give me a call. Give me a call. Let's chat. Or you can email me, alan at Wild Irish Tours, cheers at history.com, or call me at 573-338-5990, the Grand Irish Pub Crawl, and yeah, you'll have some history too. Tour of Ireland, 10 days, 10 nights, May 28th through June 8th, 2018. Reserve your slots today. And if you liked this week's program, please let us know on Facebook, Twitter, or give us a glowing five-star iTunes review. And any show ideas or comments, or you just want to tell us something about the show, tell me that I'm wonderful or that I'm suck, I don't care, give me an email, cheers at history.com, or leave us a voicemail on the History Hotline, 409 29 booze that's 409-292-6693 and if you leave a history hotline voicemail you get this week only you get a history t-shirt yeah we got a few left after last saturday a history t-shirt if this week if you leave a voicemail on the history hotline you're gonna win a history t-shirt Thanks again, everybody, for listening. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. So if you don't see me at the pub and you won't see me at the pub this week, (laughs) most of you know why, I'll see you right here next week. And as always, merrily, you are the Victoria to my shame. You are the measure of my dreams. Now, boys and girls children of all ages it's time for drunk uncle al's joke of the week now i grew up in rawls county and up there if you take highway 79 north of st louis just after you cross uh, you get north of louisiana missouri and you cross the pike county line and you come into rawls county And just off, before you get into those winding, hilly roads, going up to Saverton, which is where I'm actually from, off to the east, that'd be your right for you people that are geographically challenged, there's the Edward Anderson Wildlife Area, and it's well known for its hunting. And uh, one of the things it's also known for is for for wildfowl, uh, waterfowl, waterfowl hunting. And so this fella, he comes up, from Creve Coeur. <clears throat> he comes up from Creve Coeur and he's going to go up there and he's got, he's going to go hunting. And uh, he gets out there and he's in his blind and he's waiting and waiting and waiting. He doesn't see a duck all fucking morning. Not one goddamn duck. And this is the only day he's got to hunt. And he's going to, he has to go, he has to go back uh, that evening. Uh, and uh, he's just one day he's got to hunt and he doesn't see one 
single solitary duck. Not even a teal. Not even a coot. He doesn't see anything. And then right when he's just getting ready to pack everything up and go home, here comes a mallard drake flying right over. He can't miss this shot. He can't miss it. And he pulls up his shotgun. Bam! He gets the duck. Hits it. It spirals down. It's spinning. And it goes across the property line of the wildlife area. And there's this barn on the other side of the barbed wire fence. It hits the barn. Boom. And it falls on the ground right there in the, in the, in the, in the yard there next to the barn. So he gets up and he, he goes over there and he crosses the fence and he gets up to the barn and he's getting ready to grab the duck and he hears, hold on there, fella, what do you think you're doing? And he looks up and there's this big fella, probably almost 300 pounds, standing six foot four, wearing bib overalls. He's got him a John Deere cap on. He's got a wad of red man in his cheek. What do you think you're doing there, fella? He goes, well, I, sir, I shot this duck, and it came over here, and it landed here in this uh, in the yard, and I've just come to get my duck. And the farmer says, well, that ain't your fucking duck. And he says, yeah, well, it is. I shot it. I shot it over there in the uh, conservation area, uh, but it flew. It when it fell, it fell down in your property. But it is my duck. Fellow says, no, it's not. It's my duck. It's in my property. It's my duck. But he says, I'll tell you what I'll do there for you. I said, we'll settle this the old Rawls County way. You and I are going to take turns kicking each other in the balls, and the last man to be standing, he gets the duck. And the, and the fellow from Creed Coor, he's like, okay, I, I guess so, huh? All right. And the farmer says, good, good. Well, it's my property, my duck. I get to go first. And he reared back and he kicked him hard right in the ball. Boom. Ooh. Man, he kicked him right between the legs. And the guy's like, oh, God damn me. Breathe. <laughs> he falls down on the ground. <laughs> oh, God damn it. It fucking hurts. <laughs> oh. 15 minutes it takes him to get enough breath and uh, stand up. And he says, oh, okay, well, I guess it's my turn now. And the farmer says, ah, fuck it. You can have the duck. That's it, kids. I'll see you next week. Bye for now. <laughs>